Welcome, Redeem family and friends. Exciting today as we continue our quest to be remarkable. You know, it's been uh, wonderful to be a part of Redeem over the last three months. Our transition team has gathered and they came up with this idea of, you know, how could we be a truly relevant 21st century church, but more than just being relevant, could we be remarkable? Could we do something that would be very far-reaching in its scope in the lives of the members and also in the lives of our community? So transition team, can I just tell you thank you for allowing me to be a part of the community that you've already built at Redeem. All 16 of you have been fantastic to work with and I've loved it. And the same goes out uh, to the staff and the elders and the preaching team. Eddie, you killed it on resurrection morning just like we knew you would, but thank you for bringing such not only great energy, but the insight, the word withness, the truth of the, the blessings of being able to live uh, a life that has the the power of the resurrected Jesus and it. Just love that message and thank you. Well, today we're going to come and we're going to say, what would a remarkable church be? What would a, a really great church be like? And what's interesting, even just talking to people about church, there's so many varying opinions of what church is. So today what we're going to want to make sure that we do is that we have a clear definition of church. And then we have a, a clear vision of what a remarkable church could be like for us here. You know, it was interesting, I was in uh, Florida over spring break, and we went by a church, and this is the first time I've ever seen a church uh, that had this affiliation, but it said uh, Seventh-day Baptist on it. And I was just thinking, Seventh-day Baptist? I thought, well, isn't that great? Maybe the Seventh-day Adventists and the Baptists got together, ironed out some differences, and said, okay, let's meet together on a different day of the week. But Probably the reality of it is, is that some Baptists wanted to worship on Saturday and got in a wrestling match with the others and went out and just started their own denomination called Seventh-day you know, Baptist. But anyway, we, we have so many denominations, so many different church affiliations. There are hundreds um, of people who, when they come together, even in the name of Christ, have a hard time really knowing how to call church a loving place where they feel great to be. And so they, they often try to create that environment. And what I'm going to suggest today is that a great church can't be seen from the perspective of people. It has to be seen from the perspective of Jesus. What makes, what makes a church great? I know this is going to come uh, kind of tough to some of us, but what makes a church great is not the people. It's Jesus. Jesus makes us great, and he's in the process of transforming us to walk in greatness. And those who will come together for the purpose of being transformed into Christ are going to have a really wonderful and yet hard time together. That's how it really works. I remember uh, hearing this story early on when I was uh, pastoring. It was about a church that had called a pastor in the South, and this new pastor went there, and when he got there, I mean, just as he began his first week, one of his uh, head deacons died. And a lot of the church members came to him and, and said, you know, Pastor, uh, this is really a prominent family, but this family's pretty much mean as snakes. And so just be prepared. Well, you know, that kind of set the pastor on edge a little bit. And then they said, and then look out for his brother because he's going to be come to see, you know, come to see you. So sure enough, the brother came to call on him and the brother's name was Leroy, and he came in and he said, Well, Pastor, I want to talk to you about the funeral service for my uh, brother Jethro. 
and here's my expectations. And so he literally gave this uh, new pastor a list of what he wanted him to do at the service. The new pastor looked over it and he said, oh, I can see that you're asking me to recite a lot of things that your brother did well, kind of overlooking, it looks like maybe some shortcomings. I can do those things, he said, but this last statement that I, I call him a saint, he goes, you know, our church doesn't really put people into the sainthood. And the uh, brother said, well, you know, as, a, as head of the bank here in town, I'm aware that uh, we're creating contributions for a new parsonage. And this parsonage is going to probably be uh, something that you'd like to live in. And matter of fact, I, I'd like to be able to have our bank make a contribution all in the cause of St. Jethro. And so the poor pastor, he's thinking, what do I do on this? Doesn't want to tell his wife about it. So anyway, at the funeral service, he, he wants to be well and do the right thing. So he reads, you know, uh, Brother Jethro lived a great life. Here's his accomplishments. He had shortcomings like the rest of us. But you know what? Compared to his brother, the man was a saint. And so, you know, so obviously that's probably not a true story. It's kind of like those Netflix uh, documentaries where they're based on a true story though we've all been part of churches where there are people who are just like in control and sometimes even mean and not very enjoyable to be around and that's what happens when we try to take church into our own hands or we try to have control of it it's almost always going to be human driven and that's not going to create a remarkable church we've got to be God driven and so I love the fact that we're going to be able to uh, share a little bit in today's message what the transition team came up with in terms of when Jesus is truly at the forefront in the heart and the core of the church, this is what it's going to look like. In fact, the transition team said it's kind of like it's, it's the church's operating system is going to be based upon Jesus Christ making sure that a church does four things right. So I just want to share, share with you what those four things are. They are the, they're very simple. They're called the uh, pillars of a great church, or again, let's say it's the power of a church that's going to be moving in greatness. And for long, scholars have called these two things the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. But here they are. Number one is a great church is going to be able to love God. Number two, a great church is going to be able to love others, to love their neighbors. Number three, a great church is going to make disciples. And number four, a great church will go. Those four things have to be in place. And if they're not, then the church really isn't great compared to what Scripture says and Jesus has taught. It's just something else. And so now when you hear the word church, I want you to make one more shift so that we make sure we're using the same definition for church. Here's what I'd like for you to think of. When we say the word church, this is what I'm hoping you will see. And we're going to have it on the screen. But the church is Jesus at work in his people and his people at work in their community. Again, church is this. The church is Jesus at work in his people and his people at work in their community. Now, where do we come up with this idea? I'm going to have us go ahead and look at scripture to make sure that we see where it comes from. I'm going in Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40, and I want you to read along with me. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. 
This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. This is an amazing truth that we see in Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40. We're clearly given that the first two foundations for greatness are, as I already said, love God, and number two, love, your, love our neighbors. Now, let's find out what these other two areas of greatness are that Jesus requires from us. They're found later in Matthew. As Jesus uh, is getting ready to depart from planet Earth, he says, and I want to make sure you get these other things right. Okay, church, this is what I need you to do. If I'm going to be at work in you, and you are going to be at work in your community, let's make sure you understand this. And here it is, Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. And this is what we call the Great Commission. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Here we see that the next two requirements or the qualifications of a great church by Jesus are, you will make disciples and you will go. In fact, the go here is implied that you will go with me or I will be going with you. Today, we're gonna look at these uh, great commandments and we're gonna look at the first two portions and we're gonna look at them through the eyes, not just the eyes or the lens or the perspective of Jesus, but I hope you understand, we're gonna look at this through the heart of Christ. Next week, we're gonna be looking at those the latter two, what are called the Great Commission. But today, let's really focus in on what does it truly mean to love God and to love others. All right, so you're gonna actually find out that to be able to get an idea of what Jesus was meaning when he was telling us to truly love him, and to be able to then move to a place of loving others, that you are going to find that heart at the very beginning of his ministry. Again, Matthew uh, 28 that we just read was at the very end when he's getting ready to leave. We're going to go all the way to the beginning, the very first recording of what was going on in the early lives of Jesus and his disciples. And it's found in John chapter 2 at the wedding in Cana. And so I just find this fascinating that Jesus, as he really begins his ministry, as he launches into ministry, he's doing it in a very normal setting at a wedding. And he's there with his family and his disciples. And I'm just going to give you an overview so that we don't have to read the whole chapter. So Jesus is at the wedding. The wedding's happening. And all of a sudden, they run out of wine. Now somebody comes up to Jesus, and this somebody is his mother. And she says hey, you need to help them, they're out of wine. And Jesus gives a little pushback, there's some reluctance to start his ministry in this setting. And uh, she says, well, you just says to the head servant or the wedding planner, just do whatever he says. And then Jesus agrees that he's going to literally take care of their need for wine. And friends, this is remarkable. It's actually hard for me to uh, see the capacity of this, but Jesus takes six 25 to 30 gallon containers of water and turns them into wine. That's at least 150 gallons of wine that he creates. And then when he makes the wine, they take it to the head master of the servant. He tastes it and he comes back and says, 
why are you guys bringing the best wine out last? You're supposed to do this at the beginning when people are uh, you know, conditioned to drinking it in a place of understanding and not being too tippy, tipsy to understand the better wine. But you brought the best last and served the mediocre stuff first. And when the disciples saw that this really happened, it says there in scripture that they believed in Jesus. They came to a place of believing him because of the miracle that they saw him do. And then later on, it's interesting, they go and they spend time uh, with Jesus in his own home, and then they come back to Jerusalem for the uh, Passover, the first time they come together as disciples in Christ. And it's fascinating what happens at the Passover. Again, we're still in John chapter two, but they go to the Passover, and Jesus goes down to the temple. And in the temple, he just sees things that are going on that he really does not agree with. So he takes matters into his own hands, and he goes and he chases out the people who are selling doves and, and just creating a business environment instead of a prayer environment, instead of a house of worship. It had turned into a house of, of business. And Jesus chases them out. And then the, the religious leaders come and say, who do you think you are? By what authority are you uh, trying to make these changes? And Jesus looks at him and he says to them, I'll tell you what, uh, I'm doing it by the authority of the fact that you could, take, you could destroy this temple and I could rebuild it in three days. And they're looking and they just, you don't even get it. It took 46 years to build this temple. But Jesus was talking about temple, capital T, his body as the very temple. And what he was saying is that you have no real control over it. You could kill me and yet I'm going to come back to life within three days and create a temple better than whatever human hands could come up with. So that's the power of what he's saying. And then after that, it's interesting, his, di his disciples say that then they continue to believe on him because of the miracles that they saw in his teachings. But what's interesting is we're going to get down to the end of John chapter 2, the last two verses, and we're going to learn something very revealing about Jesus Christ, his perspective of what he, be uh, what he believed about the temple and what he believes about church and what he believes about humans. I just want to invite you to read this with me. It's John chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. It says, But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. It's interesting. Jesus we really do believe you. We, we want to be your disciples. We've seen the miracles. We've seen your teaching. We've seen the way that you're trying to change what's going on in the religious structures. And yet Jesus says, you know what? He knew what they really meant. He wasn't able to fully entrust himself to them because he knew what was in them. I just want to ask you a quick question. What is it that's in us that Jesus knew better than to trust us? What is it that's, what's broken in us so much that the Lord couldn't trust himself to us, to really be understood by us? And what I'm going to suggest to you is what it is that keeps Jesus from being able to really give himself to us is the fact that we have expectations of Jesus to live a way that we want him. We actually want to control Jesus, not be controlled nor changed by him. That's what he knew. And he knows that as long as we're trying to control who he is, put limits on him, that he's not going to have a real relationship with us because he's God. 
The very one thing that we try to make him do is the one thing he won't do, which is be less than who he is. And so until we come to a place of not wanting to control him, but be changed by him, we are not in a place where he can trust us. So if you want to be a great church, what I'm asking, would you just trust Jesus to change you to be the person that God wants us to be instead of trying to make him into a mediocre, mediocre God that allows us to be who we want to be. This is at the very core of a great church. Do you want to be transformed or do you want Jesus to fit in our church? He's looking for a church that wants to go through transformation. That's what he does best. Let's set him up to do it. So now, let me ask you something. Do you believe that your present life would benefit from allowing God to help you give away what is great? And then allowing him the opportunity to transform the things in us that are not so great so that we have something great to give away? Do you hear what I'm saying? Jesus wants to make us great so that we can give ourselves away because he laid down his very life for us. That's who he is. That's how he operates. He gave the best version of himself on a cross so that we could be not only forgiven, but freed from the very entanglements of this world to walk into a greatness whereby which we could also give away our greatness to others. And our greatness is not our achievements. Our greatness is the work of the Lord loving us and loving others through us. Again, love God and love others. Now let's go back to the great commandment in Matthew chapter 22 and see it from God's perspective. This is what he says. It's amazing. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. So again, what we're saying, if you want to be a great church and a remarkable church, you've got to get this one. Why? It's not an option. It's not try your best to love folks and love me. It is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. This is the foremost. This is it. And so I, I really appreciate the fact that God tells us that it all is powered by his love. And so we, we have to be able to receive that love to be able to give it and to be transformed by it. It's not, op, it's not an option. It's actually kind of sad if you think about it, that we're commanded, you shall love God. It's kind of like, you know, you shall love me. It, oh, I mean, it's, a, it's just hard that we're so weak that we even have to be told that. It should be, Lord, we can't help but to love you because everything else we see makes us want to love you more because everything pales in comparison to who you are and just what we already know about you. But he has to tell us, you shall love me. And so I'm appreciative of that um, because it, it, it is a good reminder that there's something inside of us that is broken. And we actually can call it trust. See, behind real love is trust. The more you and I are able to trust someone, the more likely we are to love them. And so I would say it like this, that God knows that there's a direct ratio between love and trust. And so if we really know that he's always got our greater good at his heart, then we're going to have to come to a place of trusting him, appreciating him, and leaning into him. That's what it means to truly love him. And he's just reminding us that that's important. And I would say that if you want 
a transformed life, then trust him in a, in a transformational way. Trust him to change you. Trust him to do something far greater than what we could ever imagine in our life. That's what he's looking for. There's a real freedom uh, when a church is also able to say that we love him, that we love God, that we're not about trying to get people to attend. We're not about trying to get money from people. We're not trying to create some type of programs or social ministries. What we're really about is trying to be transformed by the very love of God. That is our primary or foremost commandment. Secondly, he's going to tell us you need to be able to love others. Now, this to me is almost as embarrassing as the first. In other words, you shall love me. Now it's, and you shall love others. You're going to have to love other people. Here is the power of it. Again, let's just read it. Jesus said, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. In other words, everything you've ever seen written about me or anything you've ever heard about me are going to go through these lens, these very glasses of, are you able to love me and are you able to love others? And in fact, if we're not doing those two things, then according to Jesus, not so great, right? In fact, it does, it's not really that impactful. And then for some of us, what we've done, again, and, and I, I just want to acknowledge this because the church has made a lot of mistakes. We're, we're flawed human beings who are being transformed by the love of God, so we don't always get it right. But a lot of times what we've done is we've said, we'll love you if you think like us. We'll love you if you look like us. We'll love you if you protest against the things we protest, right? And so what we do is we create these like, mutual admiration societies as opposed to being transformed to look more like Jesus. And so what I would suggest to you is that when we really do experience the uh, amazing love of God, that we are so transformed that we can love people we don't even like or agree with. In fact, even if they're our enemies, we could still love them. And in fact, our love for them is so genuine from the very love of God that they know it too, that they know that we're loving them, that we're not trying to change them to be more like us. When we can do that, we've done something remarkable, and that's the kind of church I want to be a part of. That's what our communities need. That's why they don't come, because they don't want to be convinced that they have to be like us to be received and loved by God. It's the love of God that makes them become someone, right? And that's our goal. In fact, I would say that the more that we love a person, the more that they're going to be able to be changed and transformed. Jesus said it this way. He said, if you really want to love somebody, in fact, the greatest love of all is when you can lay down your life for another person. If you really want to understand what Jesus is telling us about loving others, here it goes. The more love we receive from Christ, the more love we're going to be able to give away. If you want to be loved, then start giving it away. Give away everything that has value and then you're going to have more valuable things given to you. That's the way it works in the kingdom of God. And I think that that would be an amazing recipe for a great church. The main thing that keeps God alive, I mean, God's love alive for me, is that I too get to learn what it means to bring loving kindness and mercy, unconditional love to other people. In fact, when I do that, what it does is it causes me to love God more. Because because God does that for me every day, every morning, he says. I have new acts of loving kindness and mercies that are, I'm giving to you. 
You haven't earned them. It has nothing to do, but this is who I am and what I do. This is how I start my day, Marty. I give you this love. I give you these mercies. Now, what am I going to do with it, friends? I'm going to give it away. And the more I give away, the more I'm going to be able to receive. But I'm not getting it to receive more. I'm giving it because I can't help it because I've been transformed by what he's given me. And that's what it means to be a part of church. And people, I know that for a lot of us, we're sitting there and we're wondering, how do we, how do we fit in in terms of creating a church and a community that are really going to be able to call one another to become more like Christ. If we would just ask ourselves that, we will be on the right track. At Redeem, here's what you can count on from us. We're not gonna sit here and, and count you. We're not here because we want to have you appear and attend our church. We're not here because we need or want your money. We're not here because we want uh, you to think that we have better programs or better things to offer than anybody else. We're here because we want to be transformed by Christ and get to know you so that you too can be a part of transforming us and our community for Christ. That's what we're doing. And so let me ask you again, if church is Jesus at work in his people and his people at work in our community, then that is the uh, place that we want to move with you. And so I'm asking you, people, if you've never received Christ before, if you don't even know what it means, what does it mean to receive Christ? It means that you are able to take your shortcomings, your sins, your hurts, and you give them to Him, and He not only forgives you, but He heals you. He takes your wounds, and He literally creates a place of strength instead. He takes our hurts, our disappointments, and our sorrows, and he turns them into hope. What other type of uh, church would you want to belong to? And so I'm asking you just to, just to trust him. That's all it comes down to. Do you believe that God really loves you? That he'd forgive you? That he'd heal you? Have you ever asked him? Have you ever read about who Jesus really is? Have you ever come alongside others who are on this quest? All we're asking you is to consider giving your life to this Jesus and allowing us to come alongside you as he literally wants to make your life great. I just bless you in this quest. In the name of Jesus, amen.